And turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. We will be beginning today in chapter 3, verse 6, reading all the way through to verse 13. Chapter 3, verse 6, reading all the way through to verse 13. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before God as we pray most earnestly day and night that we might we may see your face. I'm sorry, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith now. May our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless and holy before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. And may God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. As we come to this passage, I want to point out to you just a couple structural things that help us to understand what exactly Paul is driving at. First, note that verse 6 and then verse 10 bookend the passage with a longing to be together. There's a longing to be together. And then there's a couple fours in between there. Whenever you see a four in Scripture... You ought to pay attention. That usually means he's going to give you a list. He's going to say, for this, for this, for this, or he's going to give you a reason. So he's, he's giving you, very plainly in his language, an enveloped structure in which he says, for, 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 and in the middle of there is this phrase, which ought to have jumped out at you as a little weird, uh, this phrase there in verse 8, for now we live if you are standing fast, in the Lord. If you've been studying 1 Thessalonians with us, you know that that phrase is a little weird because we've already discussed in chapter 2 how their uh, validation of what they did in Thessalonica has nothing to do with other people, but everything to do with how they conducted themselves and their own integrity before the Lord. So their validation isn't found in other people, but their joy is. Their joy is, and you know that from the second part of chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, we were reminded that Paul was so anxious for them in verses 1 through 5, that he's so anxious for them that he desperately wants to send Timothy to them, to, to reach them, to hear from them, to know that they are okay. And so here in verse 6 through 10, we have this structural, this structure of, I long for you, I long for you, I want to see you, I want to see you, and in the middle there's a couple fours 
there. And right in the middle of those fours is this idea, we live, we live if you're steadfast in the faith. We live. It's an interesting point. And then, then in verse 11, and 13, 11 through 13, you have the hope of what he wants to have accomplished next, of what he hopes will happen. And we draw some theological truths from this hope that Paul has from his example. So let's dive in. That's the structure. I just wanted to point out that to you as we go along. So we have here, but now that Timothy has come from us or come to us from you and has brought to us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. So remember, last chapter, he was distressed, or the last half of the chapter, he was distressed in Athens. And if you remember what happened, he goes to Athens, and he preaches the gospel, and he ends up surrounded by idolatry, and he finds this one statue in uh, Acts chapter 18, he finds this one statue that's a monument to the unknown God. And he goes to the, uh, he goes to the marketplace and he's having coffee with people, he's meeting with people, he's talking to people constantly, he's engaging the world around him, and he's very casually, just like he was doing in, in Thessalonica, he's not holding court, he's not, he goes to the synagogue and he does what you do there, he opens the the scroll, he reads from it, he talks about Jesus, he closes the scroll, puts it down, they ask questions and go back and forth. And the synagogue is very, very much like a church in which people are encouraged to argue with you. Like ours at lunch. Right? That's just imagine if we set up the if every morning you came in and we had tables set up down the middle of the row, and you had somebody stand up like me who opened the scroll. Maybe they sang a song, they opened the scroll, they then read from the scroll, they said something or talked about it, and then they came and sat down at the table, and for the next hour and a half, you had a bunch of grown men arguing. That's the synagogue, right? The difference between the synagogue and church lunch is that church lunch is fun. Same deep conversation, same heavy thing, but we are wrapped in the love of Jesus Christ, which changes the way that we approach one another. It's, it makes us humble and on the even playing field, and there is, no, there is no striving to be better than the other person. There's just, what do you see? What do I see? Let's talk about who Jesus is and how he affects the way that we live together. This is, this is what's going on. Here And he, so he goes to the synagogues, he reasons in the synagogues, then he goes to the marketplace and he is engaging with people in the marketplace, buying something from somebody, going to the same, I mean, imagine it, going to the same Starbucks every day. Like that's kind of what he's doing. He's going to the same coffee shop every day, sitting down with the old men who are having their coffee. Um, there used to be a place in town here where uh, the men of various churches... Most, mostly deacons, would go sit and drink that, that thing, that excuse for coffee. Uh, it's not real, that excuse for coffee. It's kind of like tan water, that stuff. They would drink that stuff all together and it solved the problems of the world every morning at 6 a.m. They were all retired. They were all older men. 
And it would solve every problem of the world. And if you came in, they were going to solve your problems too and tell you exactly what you were supposed to do with your life. That's, what, that's what's going on in the marketplace. Paul's going to the marketplace. And as he's in the marketplace, he starts interacting with some professors who grab him, some professors and some philosophy leaders who grab him and take him to the Areopagus, which is the place where he's supposed to stand on a, on a platform and talk about what he's been telling people. So he's supposed to stand up and preach. And as he stands up to preach, he realizes how similar the audience is to Thessalonica. And in Athens, they're not getting it. And so in this overwhelming distress, he sent Timothy and he's like, Timothy, and remember what he calls Timothy? He calls him a brother and a fellow servant or a co-laborer. Or the word, it's the word diakonos. It's, it's the word deacon. He sends his brother, and he sends him with that title, brother, on purpose. Because he's trying to say, I'm sending you me. I'm sending you the guy that's even with me. I'm sending my most trusted, my brother, our brother, Timothy, and our co-laborer. He didn't send an intern. He didn't send some flunky. He didn't send some random person. He sent Timothy. The Timothy. He sent him Timothy. Timothy goes to Thessalonica to check on them. And so he gets this report back. He says, but now Timothy has come back to us from you and has brought the good news of your faith and love and reported to us that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. Timothy goes to Thessalonica and finds the same affection for the body of Christ that Paul and Silas and Timothy share with the Thessalonians. So he returns and he reports to them that they are really Christian. That's essentially what Timothy's report is. These are true believers. They come back and they are true believers. And how do we know this? Well, first, note some things about Christians. Christians bring the good news. They bring good news. The word for good news is evangelism, right? Evangelon. It's it's good news that he brings to Paul. He says he brought the good news. He evangelized us. This is interesting. The word usage here should rattle us a little bit because when we think of evangelism, we think of going to share specifically that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again, that you would be free from sin and have everlasting life. That's exactly what we tend to think of as evangelism. And in our modern American minds, sometimes it's hard for us to get out of the idea that evangelism is standing in front of a pulpit with a large crowd and going, come to Jesus. Like some of us forget that that's not evangelism. That's talking in front of a large crowd and trying to elicit a response. Now, don't get me wrong. Trying to elicit a response is not a bad idea. It's not. I think there's better ways to do it than standing in front of a large crowd and having people walk forward. But it's not. That's not bad. I mean, I wouldn't fault anybody for going, well, I want people to get saved and believe in Jesus, so I'm going to call them to do this one thing that would be a physical representation of what has happened in their heart. Fine, fine, go for it. But the reality is evangelism is so much more than that. Evangelism is something Christians do to each other too. 
We bring good news to each other. And what's the good news based on? It's based on faith and love here. Timothy brought the good news of your faith and love. And it, it brought some things to us. It was encouraging to us. And this is how the church works, right? When we see each other and we hear that you're growing in faith and that you, that you love the Lord, when, you, when we hear things about our brothers and sisters in Christ, it, it brings joy because we see the faith and love is expanding and we see that they're growing. And that's evangelism. We're evangelizing each other. That's what's going on when he comes. Evangelism is the news that is good here that comes to them that Jesus Christ matters. That's why it's so comforting when you hear of another believer who is growing. It's so comforting because evangelism, when we share our faith and love with one another, we prove that this matters. That Jesus Christ matters. That he makes a difference. That he, he is good. What, I mean, it is wonderful when I call. I, someday, if you ever want to, I'll, let, I'll share my list of pastors that I text and call with. And you are welcome to call them and ask them and get this kind of evangelism because this is what happens. I call them and we talk about the struggles in our congregations. We talk about the people in our congregations, how much we love, how much they're growing, how much they're loving, how much we love them and how much things are going well and the difficulties. We talk about all those things and we evangelize each other this way. Because if I hear about a brother or sister in another place who is standing firm in the faith, then I know this matters. And I know it means something when we worship the Lord. That I know, our, I know our prayers are not in vain. I know that the work that we have done is not in vain because I hear of brothers and sisters who left here or who have come in contact with our ministry in some way, shape, or form. And I am evangelized and encouraged by them, by those stories. And he hears the good news. So Timothy brings evangelism here, and then he talks about how, what's the evangelism of? Like, what is it? Christians, so Christians bring good news. Second, Christians love. Christians have faith and love. So one of the, the markers of Christianity, right? We've got these three markers here. We've got evangelism, and then we've got faith and love. So they, he brings good news of their faith and love. These two truths in Scripture, by the way, faith and love are married. They are married. You can't separate them. They go together. If you have faith, you love. If you love, it's likely you have faith. The word love, of course, here is the agape love. The love that I would argue philosophically and theologically that only Christians can really give. Gandhi would take issue with that, but Gandhi was wrong. So only Christians can really give this kind of love, this self-sacrificial love that has no benefit to itself and only seeks the good of the other person. Agape love, the same kind of love of Jesus Christ on the cross for us. If this is that kind of love, I would argue that you can't have this kind of love apart from Jesus. And 1 Corinthians chapter 13, any other things that you have pale in comparison to this. 1 John 4, this is a marker of who we are. We love because he first loved us. And if we do not love, we are not his. 
So a mark of Christianity is that we love. One cannot be a Christian if he does not have love. One cannot be a Christian if he does not have love. And one can only love if he has faith and is a Christian. This kind of love anyway. One can only give this kind of love if he has faith and is a believer. The last thing that we see here is the mutual affection that bookends this passage we're looking at. They long to see other believers. They long to know for them. They long to know about them. They long to hear from them. This is true. I watch you guys do this all the time. Like, I watch you guys do this. I watch when people are away. I mean, we've got um, the Nelsons back visiting from Alabama. You know how often people ask me about you? All the time. All the time. People ask all the time how, how they're doing. I'm always like, we call them, see. They're, they're, you know, we got phones. Um, people ask about you two when you're gone. They ask, like, how are, how's that couple doing? They're, they're doing okay? Like, people ask. You guys ask about each other all the time. I see what is exemplified here in Sovereign Grace all the time. And I have to be honest, it's not that way everywhere else. This is a unique character trait of this body of believers. That we long to know how each other are doing. That we long to see each other. That we long to be with each other. This is, this is unique. I mean, honestly, it's unique. I've been to a lot of churches. This is a unique one. When people are legitimately asking, how are they? What are they doing? Where are they? And this is also unique in that when I respond to you guys with, why don't you call them and ask? You do. Which is wild, right? Most people don't. Most people, you go, why don't you call them asking? They go, oh, that is, I just wanted to be in on the gossip, right? Like this, but not here. That's not what you're asking for. You're asking because you have a mutual affection and a love, and I commend you for that. This is, this is where I feel like Thessalonica, this book of Thessalonians was written to us. That's how I feel. And I feel like I could have written this. It says, that you remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. And then verse 7. The joy of Christian community. I've got three things I want to point out in here that are the joy of Christian community. Verse 7. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. The first thing is Paul draws comfort from the other believers. He draws comfort from them, peace and comfort, from knowing they're there. No, there's nothing. He can't go to coffee with them. He's in a different place. He's in a different country. He can't even go to coffee with them right now. He can't stop by their house and check on them. He doesn't have a cell phone. He doesn't have Facebook. He can't check their status updates. He can't check their Instagrams to see what they've been doing lately. Instead... He has to rely on the testimony of other people who have been there to see, to see them. He is comforted by the news of their faith. He's comforted by them. So the first thing that we see in Christian community, in healthy Christian community, is that we are comforted by one another's faith. Our faith brings comfort to each other in Paul's distress and his afflictions and all his turmoil and trials and his being rejected and kicked out of towns. Remember that he fled Thessalonica. 
In the middle of the night, he fled Thessalonica. There was persecution there. And he went to Berea. And in Berea, he was well-received. And then he went to Athens. And in Athens, he doesn't flee, but he's kind of a mixed bag of worms, rejection, political and philosophical people. People are going, well, we'll argue further. Other people are going, you're crazy. And then there's some that get saved. (laughs) Very difficult time. And so he's writing them with this understanding that they bring comfort in the midst of his afflictions. Knowing how your brothers and sisters in Christ are doing is oddly comforting. Oddly comforting. Everything can be going wrong for me. And I can get a word that one of my brothers or sisters is growing in the Lord and feeling blessed. And I'm good. Why? Because it matters. And this is the proof that it matters. Because it matters. And this is the proof that it matters. We see second here, verse 8, that thing in the middle. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. It's a weird, odd phrase. Now we live, I'm alive, if, if you're standing fast in the Lord. So it would stand to reason if, if you weren't, am I going to die? Um, and no, I mean, that's a hyperbolic statement, right? But there's, there's two things that we can see here that he's getting at. One, your faith and growth affect me. They, they inspire me. They bring me life. Like I'm alive. I'm fired up and alive because of it. And then two, they've... They bring me validation of my own faith. My own confidence is validated when Christians flourish and grow and trust in the Lord. My own confidence is validated and grown out of that. So I find validation and growth in the the comfort of knowing the believers. And more than that, I find life like I'm charged up and made alive. In Christ, because of the faith of others. The third thing here is verse 9. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for all, for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? As we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. So he Proclaims here the last thing, the third thing, gratitude. How thankful I am, how grateful I am that your faith is, is strong and that you are continuing in the faith. How, how grateful I am. And understand, this isn't, this isn't written from a guy that's uh, blindly optimistic. Paul, at this point in his ministry, has had lots of people abandon him already. He has already had several Demases in his life. He's already been stoned. This is, this is, he he knows what it means for people to join a church, stick around for a couple years and then disappear. He knows. He knows what it means to have people show up who are wolves that take members of the flock out by insidious means. He knows what it means 
He knows what it means to have people preach in vain down the street who are preaching against him personally. He knows what it means when other churches speak evil of the churches he began. He knows what it means. And we know he knows what it means because Corinth has already happened and we're studying Corinthians on Thursday and that is one jacked up place. He knows what it means. So when he sees these Thessalonican believers living in community and loving each other and, and having faith and knowing that, that they are secure and that they're growing, he, he can trust the Lord and give gratitude. And note where he gives the gratitude to. It's not to them. He doesn't write them, thank you so much for working so hard in your faith. He doesn't write them that. He says, I thank God. Because God's done it. God's the one that did the work and they know it too. You know it and I know it. You know you didn't do it. You know he did it. He's the one that does it. And he here has given encouragement and, and he returns it with gratitude. Oh, we thank God for you. For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. This that phrase, for all the joy that I feel for your sake before God, like that, that is mine. That's my phrase. Like that's, that's how I feel when I kneel down to pray for you. Oh, the joy that I feel, the, the joy that I know that there are believers who trust in the Lord who are with me on the mission. And us, even if you're far away at the moment, we still share this common mission, the joy of our God in my heart as I pray earnestly night and day that we may see face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. In this phrase, he ends there bookending the passage saying, saying I, I long to see you and then saying it again, I long to see you. Why? So that we would supply what is lacking in your faith, that we would be an encouragement and that you would, you would rise and grow, and that you would grow in the discipline of the love of the Lord. So gratitude. So you got those three things that happen in the joy of Christian community. Comfort, life, and gratitude that is poured out in prayer before the Lord. There was a great quote I think it's by Ann Voskamp who says, uh, the secret of abiding joy is to continue to seek God where we think he's not. And it had to do with thanking him for everything. You seek God by thanking him for everything. And you find abiding joy by seeking him where you think he's not. Because he'll show up. So then, at the end of this, we have the hope here in verse 11. Through 13, he says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Let's just pause there and see this beautiful doctrinal statement. One, our God, our God, not mine, our God. He is a God of us. He is a God of Christians. He is our God. We share this in common that there is one God and one Lord over all and he's ours. Note that. It's important. 
He's not the God. When Jacob is confronted in the Old Testament by Laban, remember what he says, the God of my fathers. The God of my fathers. That's what he says. Until he wrestles with God and then God becomes his own. Then he starts calling him my God. But it's not until his hip is broken that that happens. Praise the Lord. Jesus Christ was broken for us. And we have been broken by him. Our sin killed and buried with him. We share in his death and we've been resurrected with him. So we are those who are his and he is our God. He is our God. And our Father. One step closer. So he's not just God, distant, ethereal, and deep, and and majestic. He's also Father. He's also the one we run to, the one we learn from, the one we grow with, the one we grab hold of. He is our Father. And then, here, our God and Father Himself. Now may our God and Father Himself which is an emphasis on the idea that he's doing this. He's actively and intimately involved in the things that go on in your life. He's actively and intimately involved in the things that go on in your life. And yes, I mean the hard things and the easy things. The good things and the bad things. The difficult and the joyous. He is involved in all of them. And if you don't believe that it matters to him, just read the Gospel of John in one sitting. And you will see a divine heavenly Lord and his father, Jesus and God, walking with his people, suffering through their pains with them and (coughs) leaning with them, leaning heavily into him as they walk life with him constantly pleading for them over and over and over. God feels every single pain you feel. And walks through them with you. As a father. Intimately with his children. His father himself. It's not as though God sends a secretary. God doesn't send you an angel. And have the angel report. He is here. Present with you. It is our father himself. Our God. Our father himself. And our Lord Jesus. We've got distinct in the Godhead. This is fun, Trinitarian, free for you. Distinct in the Godhead, God the Father and God the Son. They are not the same and they are the same. They are both God, one, and yet they are not. The Son is not the Father and the Father is not the Son, but they're both God. Right? Now, you want to explore that there's a great many books and no one has figured it out yet if you do figure it out write a book sell it make millions and then you'll get to heaven and find out that you missed it right it'll be great but dig deep and enjoy so we see here god the father and our lord jesus directs our way to you so god directs our steps many of the men Many are the plans of men, but God directs his steps. God's the one that writes his path. This is straight, good theology. To understand that we make plans and that God does what he wants. That we make plans and God does what he wants. 
He directs our steps. He, he directs our steps for all things, for our meeting up, for our growing in love, for our sanctification with one another, for saving us at the end. Look in this passage. He says he directs our way to you. So he's directing the way that they'll, they'll meet. He's, and he's in charge here. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. He's the one that's responsible for your love and your love growing and your love blossoming. That's the Lord that does that as we do for you. And then he says here in verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts blameless and holy before our God and Father. So he says again that he's responsible for sanctifying you, making you blameless and holy. And then here at the end, and that the coming that at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. So Jesus is going to come back and he's going to rule and reign and you can be ready for it by trusting in him. You will be holy and blameless before God the Father when Jesus returns because Jesus has done the work in you. We strive, while it is true that God is responsible to accomplish those things, and He is the one that does those things, and He is sovereign over all. The word that makes all us Americans really uncomfortable, that God is sovereign Lord over everything. There is also human responsibility. I want you to note that Paul is striving to make his way. He's striving to get there. He's striving to try and get there. He is striving to love deeply and to grow. He is striving to be holy. How many times in Scripture? There's at least three that he says directly, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Be holy as the Lord your God is holy. These are imperative exhortations for you. They are statements that you are to pursue holiness. So while God does all these things and we can trust him to do them, we also strive to do them. We wrestle with God. God likes it when his people wrestle with him. That's why he named his people Israel. That means wrestles with God. It means wrestles with God. Finally, we are blameless and holy because of him and only him and in him for the joy of one another. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father and at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So note what he said there. May the Lord make, make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. This holy and blamelessness, this directing of our paths, these steps we take, this community and communion we share, this is all, all of it, all of it for the glory of God played out among the saints. That's what it's for. So that your love would abound, so that you would be more and more like Jesus, so that the world would see the glory of God in the way that we love one another. Remember what Jesus says, the world, 
will know you are my disciples by the way you love one another. The world will know you are my disciples by the way you love one another. Here, that that is him giving approval to the world to judge your love for each other. To judge our love for one another. The world will know by the way you love one another. Oh, let us love one another well. Let us be like the Thessalonians and love each other with a graciousness and a kindness that can only come from the Lord, bringing comfort and life and gratitude to one another as we strive to be holy and with one another.